And good morning, Five Points family. It is a, a delight to be with you here this morning as we dive into the Word of God together. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37, which is where we will be focusing this morning. I know I just asked you all to sit, but will you please rise again with me for the reading of the Word of God? Ezekiel chapter 37, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover, your skin, cover you with skin, and put upon you, uh, put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost, for we indeed are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated, and would you join me in prayer together? Our great God, we recognize how unworthy we are to have you reveal yourself to us at all. And yet you have given us your perfect and holy word. Uh, your spirit indwelled speech to us as your people that we might come to know you better. So, Father, I ask that you would bless this reading of your word, bless the preaching of your word this morning, and may all that is said be from you alone. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time together. And it's in the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So a few years ago, um, my wife Linnea and I, and at the time Cedar uh, was 10 months old, we went to uh, the Pacific Northwest up to 
uh, the state of Washington in the Seattle area. And if you've ever been there, uh, the, the beaches there are very uh, different from beaches here uh, in Michigan. Um, and what you'll see upon any of the Pacific Ocean beaches is just these large rock outcroppings that are, are real close to the shore, covered in, in trees and things like that. Um, and I, I don't know why, why I am this way, maybe you're this way too, but uh, ever since I was a young kid, I just if I saw something that could be climbed, I had to climb it. Uh, some of you probably are the same way. And apparently that gene comes through the father as well because I have three kids that are also the same way that if they see something that can be climbed, they will climb it. So uh, my wife, my uh, 10-month-old son are sitting there on the beach and without telling them, which of course was my first mistake, I go and say, I think I can climb that one right there. So as I begin to make my way climbing, uh, I'm thinking, you know, I'm gonna get to the top, it's gonna be a great view. But you get to this point sometimes where you have nowhere farther to go and you didn't plan how to get back down. This was me in this situation. I got to this point on this giant rock outcropping where I'm, I'm holding on with just my fingertips. I'm standing on this tiny little rock and I'm looking up and I'm saying, I can't go any further up and I do not know how to get down. And I'm thinking to myself, this is it. This, this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to just waste away because I, I can see my wife and my son from where I am. They're a half a mile up the shore. I don't have a phone. I don't have any way to contact them. I am such a fool thinking that I can do this. Thankfully, um, I, you know, God, you know, he, he helped me get back down clearly, um, finding, finding one tiny little rock that I could get my toes on so that I could get back down. Um, but maybe you likewise have experienced a situation where everything that you're looking at, you're thinking, this is hopeless. I'm in deep, deep trouble here, and I don't know what I can do to fix the situation. This is the context in which we pick up our text this morning. Uh, we, we see Ezekiel as a prophet in the nation of Israel, uh, and this takes place four years after Israel has been deported to the kingdom of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine for a moment the frustration of the Israelites. Right? God made promises to the forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them a land, an inheritance, a nation, offspring, all of these many blessings. And yet as they're looking around them in the land of Babylon, surrounded by pagan worship, pagan kings, um, they are basically living as slaves. The direness of their situation and the questions they may have been asking. Why did God allow this to happen? What about all of God's promises? Is there any hope for us at all? And those may have been the questions that the faithful remnant of Israel may have been asking. But of course, the reason that Israel and Judah were deported in the first place is because of their rebellion against Yahweh as God. They had turned their back on him and sought after other gods. So while the faithful Israelites may have been asking these questions, imagine what the uh, Israelites who had rejected Yahweh already were thinking. Well, see, we knew this was going to happen. 
We knew God wouldn't come through on his promises. We were right to seek after these other gods. From the entire testimony of Scripture as well, we see that the prophets did not have an easy task. Right? The reason why it's so hard for us to make our way through the prophetic books in Scripture is because chapter after chapter just seems to be so much doom and gloom, judgment and destruction. They had their work cut out for them, to say the least, as they were going before the people uh, proclaiming what God was going to do. And frankly, Israel and Judah are in an even deeper problem here. Because these are the covenant people of God. God declared himself to be their God from the very foundation of them as a nation. And the people said, we will follow your rules. And if we do, the blessings that you have promised will come upon us. And yet, if we do not follow the laws you have given us, may the curses also come upon us. So God had promised great blessing for their obedience, yet also great judgment for their rebellion. And now the people of Israel are reaping what they have sowed. Within the context of this specific vision that Ezekiel has, this is directly following Babylon going in and burning Jerusalem to the ground. So not only were the Israelites removed from their homeland, but now there's nowhere left to return back to. The people are completely without hope, completely destitute from any any possible conception of how can God turn this situation around. And yet if you'll look at me, or look with me at uh, chapter 36, just the previous uh, chapter that we just read, I have to read this passage of text as well as it sets up the vision that we will be moving into. Listen to verse 22. As the people are destitute without hope, this is what God says through his prophet Ezekiel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned above, uh, among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the, the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before them. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Look down at verse 32. Why is God making all of these promises to Israel? And this is so important as we move into our passage this morning. Verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. 
Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So God promises to these people in exile that he will restore them to the land, but he clarifies, this is not because there's something good in you that I am going to bring this restoration. It is because I will vindicate the holiness of my name. And so here, here, here lies the question, how is God going to do this? And here is where we pick up with our text this morning. So we see the prophet Ezekiel. Um, one of the things unique about Ezekiel is that not only was he a prophet, but he was also a priest in Israel. And so it says, the, the spirit of the Lord and the hand of the Lord brings Ezekiel down into the Jordan Valley, where he has this vision of dry bones. Now, whether or not this is an event that literally took place, or this is something that's just a supernatural vision, doesn't actually impact uh, the reality of what Ezekiel is experiencing. And it's also important to note here that Ezekiel is not... uh, Every time I used to read this passage, I would think of Ezekiel standing over the valley looking down, but the text says, he set me down in the middle of the valley. Ezekiel is right in the midst of this valley of dry bones. And this idea that Ezekiel was a priest, he is surrounded by the uncleanness, the ceremonial uncleanness of death everywhere that he looks. And so the prophet begins to to walk around and recognize that these bones have not just been here a short while. These are not recently deceased human bodies. They have been dead a very, very long time. And the fact that they are all laying upon the surface of the valley, right? These are not people that were died and went through this process of burial and, uh, you know, a a respectful uh, recognition of death. These are people that died exactly where they were standing, left out in the sun to bake, which is why they've become so dry. This is an army. This is an army that was slain by their enemies and left there destitute. Verse 3, God says to Ezekiel, and this question is so pivotal in this passage. Verse 3, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. In my own life, I wish that I would have this same response when I think something is impossible. I wish that my trust in God would be so secure that when everything looks like it's hopeless, I could say, Oh, Lord God, you know. I have this tendency in my own life to want to plan everything out, organize everything, get every little detail, every little step set. And yet we know the folly of that, right? Because God is the one who directs our steps. Or maybe in those times, if you feel shackled by sin, shackled by guilt, and you wonder to yourself, can I ever truly be free from these chains? Oh, Lord God, you know. God is the one who assures all of these things can happen. 
So God tells Ezekiel, verse 4, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. What an interesting method of evangelism. Declare to this heap of dry, dead bones that I am the Lord. Hear the words of the Lord, all of you dead carcasses. That is not how we go out and think this is exactly, this is how to win, you know, win friends and influence people. Dead bones, listen to what I am saying. I can only imagine what Ezekiel must have been thinking at this point in time as well. How is this possible? What, what on earth is God about to do here? And as he prophesies to this heap, this army of dry bones, God also tells him in verse 5, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And then he promises that the, the, all of the specific body parts of these people would come back together perfectly. And note the end of verse 6. You shall know that I am the Lord. Again, going back to this idea of this is why God is showing Ezekiel this vision. So that the people would know that God truly is the Lord. And so Ezekiel does what God asks him to do. Verse 7. Ezekiel prophesies to the bones as he was commanded. And as Ezekiel prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. This word rattling here, this noise, at other times in the Old Testament is literally translated as earthquake. So there's such a tumultuous event, this rattling, this loud noise, that Ezekiel is perceiving this as though there is an earthquake about to take place. He cries out to a heap of dry and dead bones, hear the word of the Lord. And they all come together as they needed to be. There is no conceivable way that this could possibly be the work of anyone other than God alone. And yet, even as Ezekiel prophesied to the bones, and we see in verse 8, the sinews come upon them, the flesh comes upon them, the skin covers them, but there was no breath. Right, so the first part of what God had said would happen, happened. The word of God never returns void, and yet there is still another step to this, prom this prophecy yet to be fulfilled. So it's not as though this prophecy has veiled. There is a reason why God is doing this in this process of events. And let this be a reminder to us as well. Right? Even though you may declare the words of life to someone, and even though they may outwardly hear what you are saying, that does not mean necessarily that anything internally has taken place. This is the, 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 the comfort to us as well, that we are not responsible for what happens internally. Right? God has given us a command to boldly declare the gospel, but that doesn't mean we are the ones who can save anybody. It is the work of God alone. And so as this, uh, these, these bones all come together, yet they are laying there. Now they're covered in skin. They're covered with sinews. They're covered with flesh. 
and yet there still is death. Nothing is going on yet with these people. So then what takes place? Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain that they may live. So Ezekiel has gone through this first command. He has done what God asked him to do, and these bodies have all come back together, and now God tells him, speak, essentially speak to the wind, speak to the breath. And what's interesting here, too, is that this word breath, this is the same word we see in Genesis chapter 2 when it says that God breathed the breath of life into Adam and gave him life. This is the very breath of life that started the entire human race in life. And God tells Ezekiel, essentially, prophesy to the Spirit and tell the Spirit to enter into these dead bodies. And of course we see this is exactly what happens. Breathe on the slain that they may live. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So here's phase two in the fulfillment of this prophecy. First, they are gathered back together as human bodies, and then the breath of life comes into them as Ezekiel prophesies a second time. And they rise to their feet, an exceedingly great army. Isn't it interesting to note that immediately upon their resurrection, their return back to life, they're identified with a task. They're identified with something that they need to do. They come, they live, they stand on their feet, and they're identified as an exceedingly great army. They have something now to do. Right? Our lives are given purpose. Adam, when he was created, he wasn't created solely to exist Adam and Eve were created with a task, something to do. And likewise, even in this picture of resurrection, they were resurrected to do something, to pursue what God has in store for them. And again, put yourself into the mind of of Ezekiel. This is like a horror movie, what he has just experienced. All of these these things, this, this graphic reality of all of these bodies becoming reanimated through the power of God. In verse 11, God graciously gives Ezekiel the the interpretation of this prophecy. Verse 11, God says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. And we indeed are cut off. So this clearly is not a literal uh, thing that took place, right? Ezekiel, again, is in a vision. Ezekiel is seeing the state of the people of Israel in their spiritual deadness. They are looking around them. They're looking at their state in exile and saying, we have been cut off from God. Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Our covenant relationship with Yahweh is done. 
We've been removed from the branch and have been thrown into the fire. Things could not possibly get worse. We too often, we look at the situations of our own lives and we fail to consider how God might be working even in the most dire of situations. You know, sometimes we'll hold a newspaper in one hand, a Bible in another, and say, oh, you know, this is what's happening here. This is what God is doing. And we might ask ourselves, God, is what is going on? Why does it seem like this world around us is just spiraling into rebellion against you? Are you doing anything? The prophet Isaiah, he says in chapter 55 of his book, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. See, God doesn't usually use the things that we expect to bring transformation. In fact, God oftentimes uses the things we least expect to bring about his powerful working in this world. Is this not the whole story of, of Scripture? Right? Who could have anticipated that a giant boat would have been what God would use to save humanity from total devastation? Who would have thought that it would have been this one family in the line of Abraham through whom the restoration and promise of the world would come? Who would have thought that God would use a bunch of dry bones and bring them back together so that they might be a mighty army for the Lord? And yet this promise gets even better. Ezekiel, after he has gone through two prophecies and two um, declarations of what God has told him to do, there is one final promise. Step. Look at verse 12. God tells Ezekiel to prophesy one more thing. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open up your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. This is total restoration. This is not just renewal of life. This is renewal of all of the promises of God. And one of the difficulties of this passage, as we we look forward and as Scripture continues to unfold, is there is this question that, that sits here of, has this ever actually come to pass? We know as uh, the, the people return to the nation of Israel after the exile, after King Cyrus allows a remnant to return, the temple is rebuilt, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. And yet we also know, reading from Scripture, that that didn't last either. In 70 AD, the Romans came in and burned the temple to the ground again. 
and sacked Israel. And so, has this promise of God, these three promises of life, of the Spirit, and of a return to the land ever come to pass? And this is something that we have to understand as we think about prophecy. There is what's called in uh, understanding scripture called the prophetic perspective. And if you've ever been driving down a road, uh, you may have seen a mountain range in the distance if you're somewhere where there are mountains. And it may look like one big mountain, but as you drive closer, you may realize that there's a smaller mountain in front of a, a medium mountain, in front of an even larger mountain, and you begin to see the true distance and these, two, these different events to take place. And so as we look at this promise of God, I will put my spirit in you, you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Has God come through on this promise? Some commentators will push this fulfillment until uh, way in the future, saying that none of this has taken place yet. But as we consider this prophetic perspective, understanding that the prophets saw one thing in their own day that actually would continue to be fulfilled through subsequent events, we see the glory of Christ put on display as well. So first we see the resurrection of physical Israel. Again, a remnant of the Jewish people did return to the land and did rebuild the temple. There were Israelites whom God gave his spirit. And yet that was not the final or the truest fulfillment. Because as Christ himself said after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he said to his disciples, right, starting with Moses and the prophets, he demonstrated how everything in scripture was about him. And so how does Christ fulfill this prophecy of these promises of God, right, the resurrection of the true and better Israel? Jesus Christ received the Spirit of God. In fact, he ministered his entire life in the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ it was not condemned to the grave, but he had a victorious resurrection like this vision, but even greater as the one who conquered for all time sin and death. And Jesus, Jesus Christ, his body did not stay condemned to the grave. When he rose back from the dead and ascended back into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, the book of Hebrews tells us that he was given a kingdom that was not confined to one geographical place on this earth, but he is given a kingdom that cannot fail, a dominion that is from everlasting to everlasting, that encompasses not just the promised land, but the entire globe, men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. 
So Christ is this perfect fulfillment of all of these things. The Spirit of God was put within Jesus Christ. He lived twice as he was resurrected back from the dead, and he is now taking dominion of his world through the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, after he, after he has said to the church in Corinth, right, if Christ has not been raised, then we are a people completely without hope, and we are most to be pitied because we are believing a lie. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as uh, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so we see this physical resurrection of a remnant of Israel. We see the, the conquering resurrection of the true and better Israel. And then as we read into the New Testament and we see Paul speak about the fact that all of those who are grafted into Jesus Christ become children of Abraham, we also get to partake in the promises and the blessings of what Jesus Christ receives through his victory. Men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, can be seen here as enjoying all of the benefits of what Christ achieved in the new covenant that is in his blood. We're about to partake in a few minutes of the Lord's Supper, which Jesus himself declares to be, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And when we consider what the Old Testament says about the benefits of the new covenant, we see that we, as Christ's people, those who are united with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection also partake in these blessings. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. Predicting this coming of this new covenant that would be better than the old. Jeremiah chapter 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And see if you can see, this echoes so much what Ezekiel says here at the end of our passage. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. These are the glorious promises of this new covenant, which... If your faith in, is in Christ on this day, you are a partaker of the resurrection of Christ. 
And so within this passage in Ezekiel, we see not only God's promise to restore and resurrect his son, but the promise to Jew and to Gentile that those who are grafted into Christ partake with him in the glory of his resurrection. All new covenant members, all of those who are truly following Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We are brought back from death into life as our dead hearts are changed. We are given hearts of flesh, and we even look forward to the day when Christ returns and all those who are alive in Christ receive their resurrection bodies. And ultimately, the entire church around the world inherits these promises of the land. Again, not a specific land somewhere in the Middle East, but the promise of the gospel spreading around the globe, a kingdom from every corner. As we look forward to the awaiting of our glorious king, may we remember this truth from Ezekiel's vision. Three points of application, and all three of them are the same exact sentence. So here we go. First, God makes dry bones live again. Emphasizing these first two words, God makes. Not we make. God makes. And therefore, our responsibility as we proclaim the gospel is not results. Brothers and sisters, you should be freed by the shackles of thinking that anybody's salvation, including your own, is up to you. Right? When, when the Spirit enters into you, it is not as though you have some part to play in that. Right? Dead people cannot do anything but be dead. And as we are dead in our sins and our transgressions, it is always God who brings the regenerating power through the Spirit. And as we boldly proclaim the gospel, you don't have to try to convince people into the kingdom of God. Right? You share the gospel knowing that the word of God will never return void and that the spirit goes where it wishes. If you remember the, the story or the, the parable of the sower, and when you think about the sower in that, that situation, he's doing a very bad job at planting seeds uh, because he's not, if you're a, a gardener, he doesn't go in and, and you know, pack it in and put some fertilizer in there. What is the sower doing in that story? He's doing this. He's just throwing them everywhere. They're landing everywhere. And that's the role that we play. We are to proclaim the gospel to every single person that comes into our lives. And it is always God who brings the growth. And that includes your own salvation, lest we forget that. So God makes dry bones live again. Second point of application, God makes dry bones live again. Dry bones. My friends, my brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nobody that is outside the reaches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? I, I must admit that even as I was studying this passage, there are two or three people in my own life that I would like to think, really, is there hope 
Is there hope for them? Is there really, truly hope? And yet that reveals the sinfulness of my own heart in forgetting that if God can save me, God can save anybody. Right? We all were like dry bones before Christ saved us. And therefore there is absolutely nobody that is outside the grace of God and his power. There is no one that is impossible for them to, uh, to not be saved. There is nobody who has sinned so much that the blood of Jesus Christ is not enough for them. And maybe you are out here and you are thinking to yourself, well, I'm that person. I'm that person that has sinned so much that I am without hope. That is not true either. My, uh, my, my pastor growing up always used to say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us come with the same amount of guilt, the same amount of sin, the same amount of baggage. All of us have defamed the name of God. And yet Christ's blood is so powerful that it is enough to cover the sins of anybody who turns to him in faith. So not only does God make dry bones live again, but God makes dry bones live again. And you can guess what this third point is. God makes dry bones live again. And so as we go out this week and go into our day-to-day lives, what we must do is pursue everything with an eternal perspective. Jonathan Edwards is well known as having said, Lord, stamp eternity upon my eyeballs. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that even looks like. But may we also have that perspective. Right? Jesus said to those who were following him, he said, I came to give life and life abundantly. Right? He doesn't resurrect us into a life that one day we're going to die again and just be buried in the grave. I always think of Lazarus. Right, He had to die twice. But Lazarus, though he was raised from the dead and eventually he died again, we have the promise of an eternal perspective. We have the promise of the wedding feast of the Lamb and joining our brothers and sisters around the globe and proclaiming the glory and majesty of the Lamb who was slain. And so may we be reminded as we go out, not only is it God who makes dry bones live again and that he is always the active agent in salvation, but that nobody is so far gone that they are outside of the extent of the gospel message. And that we proclaim the message of God's saving grace, knowing that there will be a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we go with the hope of that message. Will you pray with me? Father, in your word, the Apostle Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Father, I am the chief of sinners right along with Paul. 
and yet you know the deepest inward sins of my heart and you yet have chosen to love me in spite of myself. Lord, that is such a glorious message and that you have given so many in this room the hope that when we stand before you, you do not see dead, dry bones. You see your resurrected son who stands in our place. Lord, as we look forward to the day when all of us are given resurrection bodies, when we join men and women, young and old, when we join the entire congregation of your elect people on those last days, may we live each and every day in light of that day. May we go out boldly proclaiming the gospel to every single person that you bring into our lives knowing that it is the only hope that no one comes to the Father but through the Son. And may we live our lives with the joy of the gospel, knowing not only that we have been saved from sin, but that we have been saved to a life everlasting in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you for this vision that you gave the prophet Ezekiel thousands of years ago. We thank you that it had its perfect and greatest fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that all of us who are followers of your Son are able to partake in those blessings as well. Lord, we thank you for that you are a God who keeps his promises. And may we joyfully go out proclaiming that promise to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. And it's in the great, matchless, resurrecting, powerful name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.